Good morning. Our scripture today is found on page 790 of the Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer, and I have been looking forward to telling you this story for a while. Uh, I recently heard a colleague of mine tell this story. It was about a woman in his own congregation. He told it with permission and then gave me permission to tell it too. Uh, and it goes like this. So this woman comes home from work, end of a long day. Actually, it was the end of a long day at the end of a long week. It was a Friday. She comes home and she pulls into her driveway. Her driveway is relatively long. And as she pulls in the driveway, she notices two things. One. Her husband's car is already in the driveway. He's already home. And two, the trash can she put out at the front of the curb that morning and that were emptied about 12 hours ago by the sanitation team, the trash cans are still down by the curb. So she got out of her car and she started to walk down the long driveway. And as she started to walk, she began to articulate this narrative in her head. In which she said, you know, my husband's a good guy, but for heaven's sakes, if I didn't ask him to do things around here, he would never do anything. You ever, you ever, you ever formulate a narrative in your head? I do. So she gets down there and she gets the trash can. She traipses all the way back up to the, the driveway and she, she puts the trash cans in the garage. She goes around to the front door. She starts to open the door. And by this time, she has worked herself into a lather. She is not pleased. She's ready to go to war with that boy she married. She opens the door. She walks inside and... It smells like sweet potatoes in here. And at that exact moment, her husband walked around the corner carrying a platter of baked chicken. And he said, oh, baby, I'm so glad you're home. Listen, I know you've had a long day at the end of a long week. And I don't want you to have to worry about dinner, so I made your favorite baked chicken and sweet potatoes. Today we're beginning a new sermon series called I Quit. And the idea behind this sermon series is that there are things in our lives, habits that we are susceptible to, that cause us to live lives that are not exactly what God dreamed of. Today we begin this sermon series by talking about the fact that We must quit assuming. You ever engage in assumptions in your life? I certainly do. This sermon is as much for me as it is for anybody else. And here's the thing about our assumptions. 
Assumptions inherently, by very definition, assumptions mean that we claim to have facts that we don't actually have. Right? Are you with me so far? Assumptions, by definition, assumptions mean I don't have all of the information and yet... I'm going to jump on an assumption bandwagon, which is I make an assumption, I pronounce judgment, and then I have contempt. Assumption, judgment, contempt. Assumptions cause us to see the world in a way that very likely is not actually in which the way in which the world is composed. And I wanted to, to help you visualize this this morning, so I want to show you some pictures of things that look like they're happening but aren't really happening that way. For example, this dog knew if it ran hard enough and fast enough, it would catch the bubble. It did, and this is what happened. There he is. There he is. A fierce-looking animal inside that, that bubble, right? This, what I'm about to show you, is the fastest bird on the planet. Ready? Here we go. It's even got some contrail going on there. Which makes you wonder something about its digestive tract, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, this, this next one, when I saw this next one, here's what the thought that came in my head was, that girl is on fire. Who's the woman made out of fire? Uh, next slide here. Uh, I, I, I love, I love this one because it reminds me of the dog in the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah, poor thing. Yeah. Uh, next, next slide. Hermione, do you take Hedwig to be your lawfully wedded owl? Little little homage to those of you who appreciate Harry Potter. Uh, let's look at the next slide for just a second. Uh, this guy has really long arms. Look at that. He's kind of kind of creeping uh, creeping in into that that picture. Uh, this this next slide here uh, is is the the best roller coaster ever. Look at that. You better you better buckle up now. Before we move to the next slide, um, I need to tell you. That I'm, I'm not really a cat person. And I know that could start a war with some people here. Let me tell you, there are two reasons why. One, physiology. When I'm around cats, my, my eyes start to weep and I start to itch. Literally, when Jesus made me, he made me to be at enmity with cats, right? So that's part of it. And the other thing is, is really a personality trait thing. Most of the time when I encounter cats, I encounter I encounter an animal that's kind of arrogant. That's been my experience of cats. Now, maybe those of you who are cat people say, oh, not my cat, right? But most of the cats I've encountered in my life have thought, I'm going to let you feed me and house me and clean up my, my stuff after I, I make it, and then you should be grateful for the opportunity to be with me. That's just how, how I feel like most cats see the world. There's an arrogance to cats that I struggle with. But this cat, this cat may have good reason for his arrogance. Check this out. If you tooted rainbows, you could be happy about it too, I guess. So, uh, and I saved the, I saved the, the, my favorite picture for last. Uh, this will take, take you a second maybe, but here's what I've entitled this next picture. I call it Jesus Breakdancing. Check this out. Cause he's walking on the water. He's break. No? Okay. All right. It's my favorite. So there. Yeah. Assumptions cause us to claim things are true that in reality are, are not 
necessarily true. And there's a cost when we engage in this practice of, of making assumptions in our lives. And part of the cost is an emotional cost. And the, the emotional cost works like this. Most of the time, when I make assumptions, in, in the midst of those assumptions, I am the hero and somebody else is the villain. Right? Is that the way it works for you? Three of you, three of you are honest with me? That's most of the way that it works, right? I, I tend to think that I, I am better and that someone else is worse. Like, for example, I pull up to a stoplight behind somebody and the light is red and they're looking down at their hands and the light turns green and they're still looking down at their hands. What do you think? They're texting. They're on their cell phone. It's the drunk driving of our generation. People who are paying attention to the little screen rather than the big picture. And so, maybe if you're really holy, you give them like a second before you honk your horn, right? Or so, maybe if you're not so holy, you go, you, you go in the other lane and do what I call the creep, which is when you walk by and like, drive by them like this. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe they're holding a cell phone in their hands. Maybe they just left the hospital. Maybe they just left a funeral home. Maybe they just came from a bad breakup. Maybe their hands, instead of holding a cell phone, are holding prayers. I, 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 don't, I don't know, but here's what I can tell you, that most of the time when I make assumptions, I am the hero and somebody else is the villain and there's an emotional cost to it. And it's an ironic cost because it works like this. You would think if I'm the hero and somebody else is the villain, it would mean that I'm going to feel good about me and bad about them, but that's only partially true. Yes, I feel bad about that person, but I don't feel good about myself. Rather, I feel bad about that person, and then I also feel discontent and displeased with the state of the world around me. In other words, I feel worse about them, and I feel worse about myself after making an assumption. You know, there's a word for something like that. There's a word for something that poisons everybody it touches. The word is toxic. And that's what assumptions are. Assumptions are so often toxic to our emotional lives, but not just our emotional lives. They're also toxic to our spiritual lives. And so today, I'd like to invite you to take a look at our sermon, our story from this morning, from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. You can find it if you brought your own Bible, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. If you didn't, I want to encourage you to grab one of the Pew Bibles and use one of the Pew Bibles. It's on page 790 of the Pew Bible. Uh, and there's a reason that we're asking people to, to read the Bibles with us rather than just look at screens. And it's because I, I think the more we read the Bible, the more we are likely to read the Bible in the future. It makes the Bible more familiar with to, to us. So I want to invite you to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and following. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And as Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Have you ever noticed in the Bible, and more specifically in the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospels, you ever noticed that anytime a tax collector is mentioned, they are mentioned with a negative valence? Why is that? 
You could say, well, then as now, nobody likes the IRS. Are are there any IRS agents here, by the way? Uh, If so, I want you to know that you are welcome in this place. And I also want you to know that I I recently read that you all are doing fewer audits than you ever have. So praise the Lord. Thank you very much for that. Uh, But it's not, it wasn't just, it wasn't just that people didn't like paying their taxes. Here's the way the taxation system worked in ancient Rome. If I wanted to be the tax collector for my community, I would essentially pay Rome the taxes in advance out of my own pocket. And in exchange, Rome would then give me license to go around to the people in my community and collect back those taxes at a significant markup for interest. And so it wasn't just that the tax collectors were trying to collect money from some of the poorest people on the planet at a significant markup. The tax collectors were trying to collect money from some of the poorest people on the planet at a significant markup in order to benefit an enemy called Rome. Tax collectors weren't simply extortionists, though they were. Tax collectors were also viewed as traitors. People in the ancient Near East saw their neighbors who were tax collectors as thieves and turncoats. Jesus saw one of these guys Named Matthew, a tax collector, sitting at his tax booth, embezzling money from his community, turning his back on Israel. Jesus saw him sitting there and Jesus said, I want you to come and follow me. Think about this for a second. Everybody else looked at Matthew and they saw a traitor. Everybody else looked at Matthew and they saw a man filled with greed. When Jesus Christ looked at Matthew... He saw a prisoner. He saw a man who had been enslaved by his own mistakes. And if I'm being really, really honest with you, I mean dangerously honest with you today. There are times I wrestle with assumptions in my life. And here's what I find. I find that my tendency is to look down on people. When I really feel entitled to look down on people, it is often to look down on people who already don't like their lives. Never in my ministry career have I encountered a drug addict trying to get clean who said, you know, when I was 12 years old, I dreamed about growing up and becoming addicted to Oxycontin. Most of the people I feel entitled to look down upon are people that already don't like their lives. And so what we see emerging here are two groups of people. We get the Pharisees, the religious lawyers, who thought it was their task to sit in judgment of people who were enslaved by their own sin. And on the other hand, we have Jesus Christ, who knew that it was his job not to sit in judgment of people who were enslaved, but rather to set those people free. And you and I get to choose today what team we're going to be on. Are we going to be on the team that judges people who are already down, or are we going to be on the team that helps to lift them up? Jesus decided that Matthew needed to come and follow him. And that's what happened. The Pharisees were upset by this prospect. And so they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in verse 12, we hear Jesus' response. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. Ask ourselves, how does Jesus Christ avoid this cycle of assumption, judgment, contempt? 
Jesus avoids the cycle of assumption, judgment, and contempt by being clear about his mission. Jesus knew his job was not to come and sit in judgment of the brokenness of the world. Jesus knew his job was to come and heal the brokenness of the world. And so he said to those people who were supposed to be experts in their faith, he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let me pose this question. Do you remember your first brush with mercy? Do you remember? Do you remember coming forward and kneeling at an altar? Or maybe sitting in your pew, or maybe being at a, an access retreat, a, a youth, youth event. For me, it was in my brother's car when I was in eighth grade. And I vividly remember that, that very powerful emotional spiritual experience where I, I cried out to God and I said, I, I've sinned, I've, I've broken your heart, and I've, I've hurt the people around me, and I've hurt myself, and I can't fix this. And God said, my beautiful and beloved child, you don't have to think about that anymore. Those things are the past. I set you free. I wonder, do you, do you remember what that feeling of mercy was like? That release. Because one of the things I fear in myself and in the church is that many of us have been so good for so long we can forget what mercy feels like. Jesus said, I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. I desire mercy. So, Here's what I thought we would do. It, it, it might seem at first like a strange comparison, but I, I think that it really makes sense. I, I want to com- contrast assumption and mercy with you today. So if we were to think about the, the byproduct of assumption, what does assumption cause us to do? Well, one of the things that assuming causes me to do, assuming causes me to claim knowledge I don't actually have in order for me to think better of myself and and less of someone else, in order for me to be the hero and them the villain, I have to claim a scenario, a narrative in my head, that very likely is not completely true. Another thing that assuming does, assuming leads to entitlement. Because I am good and you are bad, because I am the hero and you are the villain, I now feel entitled to what is good, what is best, what is next. I, I feel entitled to that promotion. Thirdly, in terms of of relationships, assumptions, they cause us to build walls that push people away. Why is that, by the way? Because most of the time we are most susceptible to making negative assumptions about other people when we feel insecure about ourselves. Assumptions are a way to keep people at arm's length when we feel insecure about who we are. Assumptions claim knowledge. Assumptions lead to entitlement. Assumptions build walls between ourselves and other people. Now, let's look at what mercy does. Whereas assumption claims knowledge, mercy, mercy is all about curiosity. Mercy, mercy requires that we become curious instead of saying, oh, that person's bad for saying what they said or that person's bad for doing what they did. Mercy causes me to want to know why. I wonder what happened that they would say that or or do that thing. 
I just want to talk very clearly about relationships in this paradigm and in this differentiation. I want to talk to the, the married people in the room for just a second. I think one of the most damaging things that we can do as married people is we can claim that we already know everything about our spouse. That we know their past, that we know what they're thinking, we know what they're going to say, we know how they're going to react. Because when we claim that kind of knowledge, we stop listening to the other person. Mercy requires curiosity. A couple of weeks ago, my amazing, beautiful, brilliant wife and I celebrated our 11th anniversary. And you might say to yourself, she deserves a big medal, and she does. It's true. So we, we, we had a night away, and we, we went up to the, uh, the National Harbor, uh, to this, this, this hotel called the Gaylord. This beautiful hotel. It was gorgeous. Um, <laughs> and so we're out, and we're walking around downtown area there, and we're looking for a place to have dinner. And we happen upon this joint called Bobby McKee's. Oh, yeah. It's a dueling piano club. Have you ever been to one of these places before? The, the pianists sit at, uh, facing one another and they, they jam for a while and they sing and you can make requests of them, whatever. Been married to my wife for 11 years, dated a couple years before that, had no idea she was absolutely gaga for dueling piano joints. We spent four hours there. <laughs> and she had an amazing time. When I claim knowledge, I miss the blessing of learning something new. But when I engage with mercy, mercy makes me curious. Mercy makes me want to know why someone's doing what they're doing, not assume that I know why they're doing what they're doing. Assumptions lead to entitlement. I'm entitled to these things. I I, I deserve it. I am good. And the other is, is bad. Mercy is a different kind of way to look at it, though. See, here's the thing about mercy. Mercy recognizes, when we have had a brush with mercy, what we recognize is that we have made all kinds of mistakes, and specifically, we recognize that we have already been given the greatest gift that anyone could ever imagine. It is a gift that is beyond worth. It is the gift of God's grace and new life in Christ. And so, instead of feeling like I'm entitled, like the world owes me something, when I live under mercy, I recognize that God has already given me far more than I deserve. So rather than a sense of entitlement, what does the world owe me? It leads me to a sense of generosity, a desire to give. How can I make an impact on the life of the person next to me? That's a mercy life. Thirdly, perhaps most damaging assumptions cause us to build walls that keep people at arm's length mercy mercy causes us not to build walls but to build relationships i wonder if you've ever noticed that generally speaking when i tell a story about my own life generally speaking i am the idiot not the hero in the story have you ever noticed that why, why is that the case? And some of you might say, well, maybe it's because you're kind of an idiot. And that's a possibility. Maybe. Maybe that's true. And I have those moments. Andy could attest to them. But, but here's what I know. I know that we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. Amen? We learn more from our failures than we do from our, from our successes. And here's what is also true. When it comes to relationships... We draw closer through vulnerability 
than strength. When I project strength all the time, I keep people at arm's distance. But when I am convicted by mercy, I recognize I'm, I'm not okay. I haven't made all the right decisions. I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, and I can be honest about those mistakes, sincere about them. I can let people see that soft underbelly. And by extension, in exchange, they will show me theirs. It draws us closer to one another. Assumptions build walls. Mercy builds relationships. There's a woman by the name of Anais Nin. She lived a really troubled life. But she was a brilliant woman. And she said something one time that has stuck with me. She said, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so, if, if I walk through life and, and things look pretty good, it's probably because there is joy inside of me. However, if I walk through life and I see the negativity and the sorrow and the pain, it is quite likely that that's not simply an adequate represent, representation of the world, but instead, I need a date with mercy. One final thought about this language of assumption and mercy. If you really want to see how mercy can change somebody's life, you need look no further than the story of Matthew we read this morning. When Jesus found Matthew, he was a tax collector. He was a thief and a turncoat. Jesus called Matthew and Matthew followed Jesus. He followed him immediately and he followed him for the rest of his life. Matthew was there in the upper room when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and showed himself to the apostles. Matthew was there on the birthday of the church, the day we call Pentecost. Eventually, Matthew would give his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that turnaround. A man who had stolen from the poorest people on the planet is so changed that he is willing to give up his own life. For the cause of that which is greater than he is. Matthew encountered mercy. And oh yeah, by the way, before Matthew gave his life as one of the first generation of martyrs, he wrote a book. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. We read from it this morning. Mercy can transform my life. Assumptions will hurt my relationships. They will. So if I ask myself, okay, how do I really quit assuming? The answer is mercy. When I assume that I know more about other people than I actually do, pray for mercy that God will make me curious. When I assume that I deserve more than I actually do and I'm entitled, pray that God will help me realize how much I've already received and therefore make me generous. And when I find myself building walls between myself and the people around me, let me pray that God will give me the mercy to be who I really am. Not wear some false mask that keeps me from being truthful. My brothers and sisters, my hope is that today, starting today, God's people will quit assuming. I hope you join us next week as we continue this series. But for now, would you pray with me? Holy God, we confess 
that out of our own insecurity, we have so often claimed things that we don't know to be true. We have claimed entitlements that are not rightfully ours. And we have built walls. Forgive us. And help us instead to be people of mercy. Help us to remember that experience when you took our sin and threw it as far as the east is from the west. And, oh God, if there are people in this room who have not experienced mercy for a long time or who perhaps have never experienced mercy, I pray that this would be the day where mercy cascades on them like mighty rushing waters through praying a prayer like this one. Heavenly Father, I have made many mistakes. I've hurt you, I've hurt others, and I've hurt myself. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. And I will follow you all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.